I'm Jason. And I'm Scott. Welcome to Skipped on Shuffle, a podcast where we delve into an overlooked song by a popular artist. Today we're going to take a look at Steely Dan and their song Almost Gothic off of their 2000 album Two Against Nature. I would just like to start the episode by giving a shout out and a hello to all the dads listening to this episode, considering that I feel like Steely Dan is the band that like, once you become a dad, it's like requisite. They give you the greatest hits of Steely Dan and like, guess what? You like this now. <laughs> you get control of the remote. You get to control the thermostat <laughs> and they, they, they send you an entire Steely Dan catalog. <laughs> Well, I, I started listening to Steely Dan because, hey, at least both my parents <laughs> listen to Steely Dan. My mom is just as guilty as my dad for, for being a Steely Dan fan. Um, so my parents had all the albums, and I don't know, Steely Dan album covers are weird. And I think I was just kind of fascinated by the band. And I knew, you know, a handful of their songs, you know, Peg, Ricky Don't Lose That Number, you know, a, a lot of the, the big hit stuff. I started listening to them a lot in high school, and I think I became super fascinated by the sound because it's something you can't get away from because this band is obsessive um, about how their instruments sound and about the the overall texture of the music. And I think it's only been in the last few years as I start to listen to more of the Steely Dan lyrics that I just realized how weird this band <laughs> is. I, I, I know everyone says, like, I'm not saying anything... You know, this isn't a revelation for most people. But I think I'd always paid so much attention to the music that for some reason, now that I've been listening to Steely Dan for a while and paying more attention to the lyrics, I'm kind of confused a lot (laughs) of the time. And I mean, that's certainly the case with our song today. Yeah, I I am not a big Steely Dan fan. I mean, I'm not like against Steely Dan. I just never really put them into a category of like, oh, this is a band that I listen to often and I'm really interested in checking out whatever they do, something new or whatever. It, it, you know, they're just kind of there and I'm like, oh, they're, they're fine. But so, so in preparing for this episode, you know, I, I, for the first time did delve into the lyrics for, for this song that we're covering almost Gothic, as well as a bunch of their older songs and their big hits or whatever. And yeah, like I had a similar revelation to what you probably had a few years ago. Where I'm just like, what the hell, what, what is this? You know, what is he even talking about? These you know, it's, these down and out, creepy, weird yeah. ca- characters. Like it's, it's hard to, to put into words. I mean, there's there's probably a couple categories that the the characters fall into, but just stories that you're not likely to hear in most pop songs. While the stories they construct in their songs are strange, the history of the band is a little more straightforward. In 1967, singer and keyboardist Donald Fagan 
meets guitarist Walter Becker at Bard College in New York. Fagan heard Becker playing guitar in a cafe, and they formed a fast friendship, bonding over their shared musical interests. They start playing together in a number of bands in the local music scene, playing blues and rock covers and some original songs. One of those bands, Leather Canary, actually had Chevy Chase on drums. The biggest asshole in Hollywood. I'm sure they threw him out, probably. Yeah. Along with, <laughs> along with everyone else in his career. <laughs> in 1969, Becker and Fagan left school and moved to Brooklyn and continued writing music. They shopped their material to music publishers and got the attention of Kenny Vance, one of the founding members of the pop band Jay and the Americans. They toured with Jay and the Americans with Fagan playing keyboards and Becker on bass, and they also wrote string and horn arrangements for the band. They wrote the soundtrack to a 1971 film called You've Got to Walk It Like You Talk It or You'll Lose That Beat. Everyone's seen that rolls, one, right? Rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> Obviously, the film is not well known and didn't do much for Fagan and Becker's careers, but if you're looking for early Steely Dan, by this time they had laid down tracks that they'd later revisit. That year, Barbara Streisand recorded one of their songs, I Mean to Shine. Around this time, one of Vance's colleagues, Gary Katz, moved from New York to Los Angeles to work for ABC Records. Liking their work, he offered them jobs as songwriters for him out in L.A. But he quickly realized that their songs were too complicated for the artists on the label, and he suggested they make their own band, so they did. They named their band Steely Dan, which was a reference to a dildo in William S. Burroughs' famous, infamous, (laughs) (laughs) book Naked Lunch. They reached out to singer David Palmer, guitarist Jeff Skunk Baxter, and Denny Diaz, and drummer Jim Hodder. They decided to hire a singer as Fagan had anxiety singing on stage and everyone felt a professional singer would help the band succeed. Fagan played keyboards and Becker played bass. Katz would produce the band's music along with Roger Nichols, a sound engineer, all through the decade. The band released their first single, Dallas, in 1972. It failed to gain any attention, but their debut record that came out later that year, Can't Buy a Thrill, made a splash. The record had two hit singles, Do It Again, which hit number six, and Reeling in the Years, which reached number 11 on the Billboard charts. You're everlasting summer, you can see it fading fast. So you grab a piece of something that you think is gonna last. Well, you wouldn't even know a diamond if you held it in your hand. The things you think are precious, I can't understand. Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time. Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of mine? That's Donald Fagan singing, and he also sang lead on Do It Again. But David Palmer does sing lead on the fan favorite and other radio staple, Dirty Work. While Palmer toured with the band for their first tour, he left shortly afterwards during sessions for their sophomore album. Behind the scenes, Katz and Becker preferred Fagan's vocals. Becker, while writing all the songs with Fagan, stuck to just playing bass. The second album, Countdown to Ecstasy, came out in the summer of 1973. The band recorded it while they were touring, and they blamed this for the poor reception it received. Even so, it still has some classic songs on it, like the single My Old School. I was smoking with the boys upstairs when I heard about the whole affair. I said, one now, William and Mary won't do now. Well, I did not think the girl The band continued touring, and in February 1974, they released their third album, Pretzel Logic. 
For this record, Steely Dan started incorporating more obvious jazz influences and began to use other musicians on their songs instead of their regular band. The album received high praise from critics, it sold well, and Ricky Don't Lose That Number became their biggest hit, reaching number four on the charts. But if you have a change of heart Ricky don't lose that number You don't want to call nobody else Send it off in a letter to yourself Ricky don't lose that number During this time, the live band ends up changing with Michael McDonald coming aboard on keyboards and backing vocals, along with percussionist and singer Royce Jones and drummer Jeff Porcaro. With members of Steely Dan's original band playing smaller roles on the record, with tracks featuring a number of other musicians now, this cements when Becker and Fagan become the sole Steely Dan members and feel free to use whom they wanted on their records. To realize what a big change this was, think about the fact that we first hear Walter Becker playing guitar on the third Steely Dan record. As for touring, Becker and Fagan were growing tired of it and wanted to spend their time writing and recording instead. After a tour to support Pretzel Logic, they would play what would be their last show until the 1990s in July of 1974. Now that they weren't a touring band anymore, Baxter left and Hotter, who had been reduced from his drumming duties to just a backup singer, also departed. Jones, Porcaro, and McDonald, along with guitarist Denny Diaz, would remain among a growing list of session musicians that would play on the albums. Fagan and Becker began work on a new album, and in March 1975, they released their fourth record, Katie Lied. The album was well-received by critics and hit number 13 on the charts. The biggest track on the album was Black Friday, which peaked at only number 37. This was the first album to include Michael McDonald's vocals on it and a new notable Steely Dan player, guitarist Larry Carlton. While the album sold well and critics enjoyed it, the band, now I'm referring to only Becker and Fagan, weren't pleased. During the mixing of the record, a new noise reduction system was used and there was some kind of malfunction, which they felt ruined the sound of the whole album. While Katz and Nichols contacted the engineers of the system to fix what damage had been done to the sound, Becker and Fagan refused to listen to the record again. The liner notes on the back of the record actually have this sarcastic description about how they use the latest technology in reference to this incident. This would not be the last time they had technical issues mar the production of a record. In 1976, they released their fifth album, The Royal Scam. While it didn't have a hit single, you might recognize the song Kid Charlemagne. Just by chance you crossed the diamond with the pearl. You turned it on the world. That's when you turned the world around. song has one of my favorite guitar solos ever and it's thanks to larry carlton carlton is all over this record but it does feature a number of other guitarists and is considered one of steely dan's more guitar centric records the album wasn't as well received as previous records but reviews were still positive 
Their next record, 1977's Asia, would be their biggest album yet. It was their first platinum record, hitting number three on the charts, and received a Grammy for its engineering, along with nominations for Album of the Year and Best Pop Performance by Duo or Group. There are a number of classic Steely Dan tracks on this one, including Deacon Blues, Josie, and one of their most well-known songs, Peg. So let's take a listen. They rehearsed a tour behind the record, but quickly abandoned the idea. The story supposedly is that the musicians they hired discussed their pay with each other. Wait a minute, bro. How much are you making? How much are you making? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> In 1978, work started on what would be their seventh album, Gaucho. The recording and their personal lives were plagued with problems. Their record company, ABC, had been bought out by MCA, Music Corporation of America, they were owed royalties from ABC and thought that they were finished with their contracts, so they were in the midst of seeking a new label. But MCA contended that they were still owed another record from their contract. The case was settled in court, and MCA paid them their royalties, but they had to deliver another album. Becker and Fagan started recording in New York City, a big difference from their more L.A.-based recording. One problem they had was communicating with their new New York session musicians. Also, Becker had an increasingly problematic heroin addiction he had been using for a while, but things were getting bad. His girlfriend died of an overdose, and the family sued Becker, feeling he was responsible for her drug use and death. The lawsuit was settled out of court. As if things weren't bad enough for Becker, he was hit by a cab during the recording sessions, which left him with a fractured leg that took months to recover from. He was unable to be in the studio with Fagan, who started indulging more in his perfectionist tendencies. Despite having access to the best drummers in the world, Fagan was unhappy with the takes. He wished that there was a drum machine instead to place things exactly where he wanted. Their engineer, Nichols, created a system called Wendell for Fagan. In addition to all of this, in the midst of the recording, one of the favorite tracks they had, the second arrangement, was accidentally erased by an assistant engineer. They tried to recover the song and re-record it, but eventually gave up. A number of other songs were abandoned throughout the writing of the album. They did manage to finish the record, and Gaucho came out in late 1980. When the album hit shelves, MCA sold it for a dollar more than new records usually were, $9.98 instead of $8.98, and this further aggravated Steely Dan. Gaucho still sold well, getting to number 9, thanks to the hit single Hey 19, which made it to number 10 on the charts, but the album did not receive the wholly enthusiastic praise as all of their previous records had. They won a Grammy for Engineering, and once again, nominations for Album of the Year and Best Pop Performance by Duo or Group. When the album went platinum, the drum machine system Wendell actually received recognition with a platinum award of its own. <laughs> Despite getting through the record, problems continued when the band was sued by jazz composer Keith Jarrett for similarities on the title track to one of his songs, Long As You Know You're Living Yours. They settled a lawsuit and Jarrett was credited as a songwriter, with Fagan admitting he had drawn inspiration from the song. With Fagan and Becker disillusioned by the past few years and not having enjoyed any bit of making gaucho, they decided to disband Steely Dan. Becker moved out to Hawaii to become an avocado farmer. Like you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's funny. We have an REM episode where, yeah. <laughs> where drummer Bill Berry leaves and goes into farming as well. Farming is just, it's the, it's the new thing. It's the second, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's the career shift that musicians make. 
Fagan embarked on a solo career. They would regularly produce other artists. In 1986, Gary Katz was producing a record and had Fagan and Becker both play on it, which brought the two back together. They started writing songs again, but nothing came of it. In 1991, Fagan put together the New York Rock and Soul Review Show with a diverse band that included former Sealy Dan member Michael McDonald. They performed their own material and classic Motown songs. Becker attended one of the shows and performed with the band. Shortly afterwards, in 1993, Becker produced Fagan's second solo album, Comicuriad, as well as played guitar and bass on it. They toured together to support that record as Steely Dan and played material from Fagan's solo career, as well as classic Steely Dan tracks. In 1994, Fagan returned the favor of producing and helped Becker put out his first solo record, 11 Tracks of Whack. They continued touring steadily through 1996 and then began work on a new Steely Dan record. The result would be 2000's Two Against Nature, which features our song Almost Gothic, so we'll come back to talking about this one soon. But here's the lead single, Cousin Dupree, and yes, we might have some explaining to do with that track. <laughs> Honey, how you've grown like a rose Well, we used to play when we were three How about a kiss for your cousin Dupree? How about a kiss for your cousin Dupree? She turned my life into a living hell and Those little dots and tight Dupree's I pretended to be reading the National Probe As I was watching a wax and skis They toured extensively to support the album. In 2001, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In 2003, they released Everything Must Go, which would be the ninth and final Steely Dan album. They would tour to promote that album and then continue regularly touring, sometimes even showcasing particular albums from front to back. In 2017, Becker died of cancer, and Fagan vowed to continue sharing the band's music with audiences. Okay, so let's get back to the year 2000 and Two Against Nature and the song Almost Gothic. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Right about now, in most podcasts, you'd be hearing an ad for something, uh, but we are trying to keep Skipped on Shuffle ad-free, and the way we're going to be able to do that is through Patreon. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash skippedonshuffle. Any donations go to support the costs associated with running this podcast. We just went through the history of Steely Dan, and I'm not going to go back and, and rehash anything that we just said, but I do want to emphasize that this album that we're talking about today, Two Against Nature, was a huge, huge deal. This is an album that you know people had been hoping for for nearly 20 years at this point and thinking they were never going to get. They thought Steely Dan was over. Sure, Steely Dan was, at this point, touring sporadically, which was something that they probably didn't expect to ever happen again, considering that the band pretty much swore off touring early in their career. But the idea of getting a new Steely Dan album with new material from both Becker and Fagan was was huge. And this album, Two Against Nature, ended up being very, very 
I mean, it was, it was all over the place. You couldn't, you couldn't turn, you know, any music store had the poster up and this album was flying off the shelves. And then eventually it ended up winning a a slew of Grammy awards. Yeah. One, like one, like four Grammy awards, including album of the year. Yeah. And in in a year when some, some of the fellow nominees were Radiohead for kid a and Eminem for I don't know which one. I think it was, it was the, the first one, the, the first Marshall Mathers yeah. LP. So, so I mean, those are for 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 this album, Two Against Nature, to to beat out Radiohead and Eminem is 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 a very it's an interesting turn of events. So, so Jason and I, we we kind of were talking before this episode, and we we both agree that that Steely Dan didn't win all the Grammys for Two Against Nature because of Two Against Nature. It was more like a lifetime achievement award. It was more like the the Grammy awards basically saying like, we owe you some Grammys from your previous career that maybe we overlooked back in the day. I mean, sure they were they were winning Grammys with the with their earlier works, but they were mostly for the, for, yeah, mo- yeah, mostly, mostly for the technical. sound. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, I feel like Two Against Nature winning all these Grammys was much more of like a we're sorry we didn't give you Grammys back in the day. We're sorry that we overlooked you. Here's a Grammy for your new record. It's just, I mean, I I just can't imagine. I mean, because when you think about Kid A. And and the Marshall Mathers LP, you think about these albums that are, I mean, these are like life changing albums that change the course of music history in many different ways. And Two Against Nature, as as good of an album as it is, is not that. So, I guess it's just interesting to point out that like this is a band that retrospectively is something that is revered amongst musicians, music listeners, and 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 even by this award ceremony, the the Academy of of Arts as well. So. I guess I just want to preface talking about this album as saying like, this is not an album that is one of those later career albums that just kind of gets swept under the rug is like, Oh wow. You know, like look at this, you know, sting is releasing another record. Isn't that amazing? Like, no, this was actually a really, really big deal when it came out. When you put the record on, it's almost as though no time has really passed. It's still the same sort of sound. I think they delve a little bit more headfirst into just making a straightforward jazz record as opposed to we're going to incorporate these sort of like jazzy elements here and there. Um, Because if you listen to the song like Hey 19, like, yeah, it's a jazzy kind of like funky tune, but you'd still be like, oh, it's this, you know, pop rock song with with a touch of jazz as opposed to this, which is just there's not a song on here that doesn't fall into that genre, I think, even though it's a more funky upbeat they they get criticized sometimes for the style of jazz that they do that it's this sort of elevator background background party music sort of jazz where it doesn't throw itself too in your face and yeah. just kind of, and, and I, I don't it's, know what I'm trying to, this, this isn't John Coltrane jazz or, or bitches brew by Miles Davis. This yeah. isn't like we're pushing the boundaries of what jazz can be. This is, I, I'm reluctant to say smooth jazz. Yeah, it's not smooth jazz. But, but it's jazz. not that, but it's... But it sounds closer to smooth jazz than, than maybe it does some to, people yeah. would like. Yeah, yeah I, I felt the same thing. Like I like I said at the top of this episode, I'm not a huge Steely Dan fan. I have uh, a Showbiz Kids, which is a double-disc collection of their greatest hits, and, and that's pretty much all I've ever really needed from them. I haven't really felt any need to go further than that. And when I put on Two Against Nature for, for the first time just the other day, getting ready for this episode... You know, I got 
three tracks into it and it was like is there gonna be a track that's not a jazz song and there wasn't <laughs> like it's like so when you listen to something like ricky don't lose that number or reeling in the years or peg like you said like you get that jazz kind of technique in there and you're like oh there's some horns or oh that's a funky chord they're using there that's kind of jazzy or that's a jazzy little vibe they got this is like jazz that just so happens to have pop vocals over the top of it as far as i can tell so yeah it it i don't know like you say that you turn this record on and it's almost like nothing changed but it's almost like they're picking up where they left off, but just leaving out like their history. The, of, the like, slower transition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, nope, we're, guess what guys, we're a jazz band now. 20 years later, it's jazz time. <laughs> and it makes sense because this album is very New York city. Mm. Um, one of the things that people have kind of pointed out is that, you know, recording in LA and New York, that their albums tend to have like the vibe of one or the other. And this certainly has a whole New York city vibe all over it. Uh, especially just the references that there are in songs of just various places around New York City. Yeah, he even says New York City in a couple of them at least. Yep, so yeah. we, we kind of know where we are. Um, at the top of the episode, we talked about how there's all these weird Steely Dan characters in the songs, and we get a bunch of them in Two Against Nature. In What a Shame About Me, we get this kind of down-and-out, middle-aged guy. That's what most of these appear to be, is these stories of different question mark middle-aged this middle-aged guy who's definitely who, not <laughs> Donald <yeah>. Fagan <laughs> so it's these we we, we had talked in uh, another episode of of skipped on shuffle and nine inch nails about these semi-autobiographical so we get we, we you get the feeling that Fagan isn't the narrator but has some uh, some intimate understanding of yeah, how, how like, this person feels. It's like, oh, uh, something happened to Fagan or he read about something in a newspaper or whatever and related to it in some way and then just kind let of- Let his imagination kind let of his run, Yeah, totally. He's like, it. let me embellish this. Let me take this to a So it's like, for example, with the song, uh, What a Shame About Me, you just mentioned that song is about a guy who runs into an old flame and they end up talking and hooking up and whatever. And so, yeah, it might've been like, maybe he did run into an old flame at some point maybe they didn't hook up maybe they did who knows but you can you can sense that he kind of had a life incident and then just kind of went with it into sort of fantastical directions and i don't know i get the idea that that's kind of happening on all the songs especially the one we're going to talk about today which is almost gothic although with i think with some of the other tracks almost gothic is a lot more vague you can't really tell mm. what's going and on and a bit and a bit sweeter of a yeah. song we're gonna, i mean we're, there's some there's some skeevy songs on here like <laughs> I, I i just need to well we had talked about cousin dupree which is yeah basically, let's, let's talk about cousin yeah dupree which is quick. basically was the was the lead single after 20 years nobody had heard new steely dan and becker and fagan were like what do people want to hear and it's like oh this upbeat jazzy song about this guy who sees his younger female cousin after a long time and is like, Oh, Hey, look at that. <laughs> and then that's what this, the song is about. This guy who's just like, how can I figure out how to hook up with my cousin? <laughs> I mean, it's just no, no other band. Can I think about yeah, would, would do really that and, off. and come across in a way that yes, it's creepy, but the way Steely Dan presents it is funny and just bizarre and sad. Like and and that's kind of something that runs through a lot of Steely Dan songs is you're just like oh this poor person yeah so with 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 cousin Dupree 
you and and with the song that we previously mentioned, "What a Shame About Me," you you you're hearing a story, and it's pretty def- definitive what the story is about. You get an idea of like, okay, this character and this character. Yeah, they're in this situation, and this is how they're yeah how they're acting. Yeah, and yeah, that stands in pretty sharp contrast, I think to to almost gothic our song today and i and i think it's kind of the only one that is yeah I, I don't know like you you've listened to the album a lot more than me so if you say that then i'll, I'll totally yeah i, I feel yeah. like this is the only song on the record where i'm like i it could be anything going yeah. on in the song and i'm not quite sure what to take away i mean there's mysterious and weird cryptic things in other steely dan songs and certainly a a, a couple phrases or things on on this record, but not a whole song from beginning to end, like almost gothic feels just incomprehensible in some ways. Musically, almost gothic stands out. I I think from the rest of the album, and a lot of that is due to the fact that it's this keyboard horn driven song as opposed to the rest of the songs on Two Against Nature, which are very drum, bass, guitar oriented. Like the 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 band finds this groove and kind of stays in it through the duration of the song. And this one kind of feels a little bit looser. Like it shifts around a little bit more. There's those surprising chord changes where it's not, it's not dissonant or anything. It's not just like, Oh, I didn't really like see that coming. It's these smooth kind of weird ethereal transitions that I, the song is set in summer. And I don't know if I'm just putting that into, I I, I feel like the structure of it fits like this kind of hot, hazy, summer that i think the song sets up in its opening lyrics yeah so let's get into the lyrics here and talk a little about what's going on so before we're let's hold back our interpretations first and just give the audience who you know hasn't heard this song or, or doesn't have the time to like listen to the lyrics or whatever let's let's give them an idea of some lines here so so the, the song starts off i'm working on gospel time these days summer the summer this could be the cool part of the summer so there you go we're in the summertime some guy's living on gospel time, doing his thing. Whatever that Whatever means. Whatever that means. <laughs> a wise child walks right out of here. I'm so excited I can barely cope. I'm sizzling like an isotope. So summertime, this guy, this this character meets a wise child, which we're just going to go ahead and assume from the rest of the lyrics is a, a young girl. I'm on fire, so cut me some slack. First, she's way gone. Then she comes back. She's all business. Then she's ready to play. She's almost gothic in a natural way. So that's that's the, the first, you know, let's just call that the first minute of the song. We've got a guy in the summertime meeting a, a young woman who is almost gothic in a natural way, whatever that means, and is kind of toying with him. First, she's way gone. Then she's back you know, she's all business, then she's ready to play, you know, so a mysterious woman enters his life. So where do we go from there? So in our next verse, this house of desire is built four square city, the city, the cleanest kitten in the city, 
When she speaks, it's like the slickest song I've ever heard. I'm hanging on her every word as if I'm not already blazed enough. She hits me with the cryptic stuff. So one thought that I had with the song is in some ways, I had mentioned it earlier, the song Hey 19, which is basically about this older guy who meets a young girl and she doesn't even know who Aretha Franklin is. Is is the the joke is just how they don't have anything in common and any references that he makes, she kind of has no idea. And I feel like there's might be a kind of similar thing going on here with the she hits me with the cryptic stuff where it's like she's telling me something, or maybe he's just confused about the situation. But I feel like there's some obvious disconnect between the two of them, whatever it might be defining what this relationship is. Cause the way it comes out, you get definitely this sex sense in the song that they're together, but then she like goes away. So it, it might be this like casual sexual relationship that he has with this girl. I, I think that's, that's the vibe I get. I don't know if I can point to any one line specifically, but I think the fact that we get, you know, this house of desire and the fact that she's she's around, you know, it's the slickest song I've ever heard. It's just like the it's the sex is great with her. It's amazing, but then we don't have anything else that we do like outside of this. Right. So then things get a little stranger with a further down we go further down the song and it says this dark place so thrilling and new it's kind of like the opposite of an aerial view unless i'm totally wrong i hear her rap and brother it's strong so now it's like okay now we're getting confused cuz at first it sounds like he's talking about like this dark place so thrilling and new like we're in this weird zone or maybe we're actually in a physical spot like a dark room or something i don't know and then but then he starts talking about oh then i hear her rap and he's like oh okay like is, is, is that literal? Like, should we take it literally that she's a rapper? Like, is he, did he meet a rap star? Like, I, feel, I, I don't know. I, you know. I don't know. I feel like it's not literal. And again, putting it in the context of this character, this dark place so thrilling and new, I feel like maybe it's simultaneously the room that they're in and also this experience that I'm having. Like, I've never kind of been with someone younger. I, I you know, I'm not really sure. And I feel like, possibly the it's kind of like the opposite of an aerial view is just the the person i'm with is this like down to earth person and maybe literally has like a little shitty basement apartment and that's kind of where they meet and maybe he's someone who's you know lives in a skyscraper somewhere you right know, lives in like a tower somewhere so it might just be kind of again describing that gap that exists Right, Between I'm, I'm wealthy older it's, man. Yeah. You're a young broke star art student, or yeah. rapper, or even rapper, or what, yeah, whatever. Yeah, 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 whatever it might be. But I feel like it's potentially explaining that in a way that's physical, but also references that. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So, so then uh, it continues. He talks more about the girl. He talks more about how confused he is and how he likes her, and he's uh, hypnotized and all these other things. Then it gets to the towards the end here. It says it's called love. I spell L-U-V. First she's all buzz, then she's noise-free. She's bubbling over, then there's nothing to say. She's almost gothic in a natural way. And then he compares her, in the final stanzas, he compares her to little Eva meets the Bleecker Street brat. 
And so little Eva is the woman who wrote the, or not, maybe not wrote, but, but, but famously sang the locomotion, which is, you know, the song everybody knows, do the locomotion with me or whatever. Uh, but the Bleecker Street Brat, we couldn't find anything on. We don't really know what's being referenced there. As we assume as, like a, a college, because it's this famous street with music stores and it's a very like hip college place because it's close to NYU. So I'm assuming that whoever this character is maybe is envisioning themselves, picturing themselves younger, like feels younger because you're with this younger girl. So thinks back to something he can relate to, which is just like maybe this crush he had on little Eva, the locomotion singer, <laughs> you know, and, and he was, you know, maybe college age, you know, at that time, or at least like familiar with Bleecker street or something. And that's kind of the terms he's putting it into to, to kind of understand the situation. Yeah, so so you're gonna have to, you know, the listeners out there, if you're if you're really confused and you want to figure this out and you want to have your own interpretation, or if you're a Steely Dan fan and just never really gave this song, you know, some attention, we highly recommend going online and reading through these lyrics and coming up with your own interpretation. But but so now that we've given a basic idea of what's happening here, what what do you think, Jason? What, like what what do you think is actually happening in this song? I don't know. I I run through a whole gamut of possible things that it's about, and I tried to look up what other people were saying and it's everything from it's someone seeing a dominatrix <laughs> <laughs> and 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 given given the steely dan sort of yeah it's, it's world, a dildo it could, the name, it could their totally name, be the name of their band is a dildo <laughs> reference so let's just let's just say that <laughs> i mean in in some ways my my initial thought was that it's somewhat about music that getting excited about music hearing somebody for the first time or being really impressed with, you know, going into, you know, this is New York city going into a small club somewhere, seeing someone perform and being just aroused by it. And I think, you know, you can put it in, in those terms. And I think that works for it because it's just like, Oh, I'm, I'm hanging on her every word. I'm so into this. And then she hits me with the cryptic stuff where it could be like, the Steely Dan meta reference where it's just like, oh, you're so into the music. And then I use this like weird turn of phrase and you're like, I don't really know what you're talking about, but I'm interested in hearing more. And I, I get that sense. And I, I don't know. I, I feel like it could go in so many different directions that that's kind of why I like this song. We had done an episode on REM and I kind of talked about the same thing with Michael Stipe's lyrics where he has these weird combinations of phrases and you're never quite sure what he's talking about. And I feel like in this song, Donald Fagan is doing like that exact thing where it's just like, I'm probably referencing something that means a lot to me and maybe yeah, I was inspired by some experience I had recently, but you're not going to be able to unlock whatever it is. I like the dominatrix idea. <laughs> <laughs> and in case I, I can, I can, and in case you're like, what? The, the 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 reference that someone cited was the the this dark place so thrilling and new. It's kind of like the opposite of an aerial view as a reference to the the big mirror that's above the the bed. Right. Yeah. Was was what they they pointed to. Yeah. There's another line in here that I that I that I read that made me think about the dominatrix thing, which is I'm in the amen corner now, where he's literally been like whipped into a corner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, Donald Fagan. He's he's. He seems like the right material for a dominatrix 
boss thing, like to me. Like I don't know, a guy who's like super meticulous and super like anal about stuff and wealthy white man. Like I mean, I don't know. I'm. I don't know if our listeners know much about Dominatrix, <laughs> but that's their bread and that's butter. The that's, that's, that's the profile. <laughs> We have an episode we did a while back uh, on Genesis, who are very, very, very different band from Steely Dan. I mean, obviously there's some overlap, but but not much. When you when you listen to Steely Dan and you listen to especially early Genesis when Peter Gabriel was the front man, you, you hear very distinct types of sounds. But the thing that sort of aligns Steely Dan and Genesis for me is the idea that that they're very smart people and excellent musicians. Regardless of my feelings about Steely Dan, it's impossible to set aside the fact that these are clearly musicians that have an almost unholy grasp on how music works. I mean, these are guys who who know the rules of music so well that they're able to consciously break those rules and still make it work. And I mean, that's like kind of the sign of a consummate professional, somebody who can see how things work and then go against the grain and still make it work in some capacity. And I feel like the, the problem that I have with Steely Dan and the reason why I don't consider myself to be a huge fan of theirs is that Genesis used that intelligence and that incredibly intricate knowledge of music and music craftsmanship that to make this music that was awe-inspiring and grand and epic and powerful and varied and just awe-inspiring in so many ways. I mean, you listen to Selling England by the Pound from front to back, and you're just like, you're just like, where is this coming from? This feels like it's from another planet. And I feel like Steely Dan took that same amount of talent, maybe even arguably more talent, and to me squandered it on the idea of making just, I don't know, this kind of like overly pretentious sound. Like I don't know. We talked earlier about how Steely Dan, the two guys in Steely Dan, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan, are so hyper-focused on making everything sound so specific. You know, with you mentioning like, oh, I wish there was a drum machine that I could do this specifically with. So they had to invent a drum machine to do this with. I feel like that kind of attitude, that perfectionist attitude is more like mathematical than artistic. I don't know if that makes any sense, but like, I feel like their approach to their music is so heady that the heart gets kind of lost. And I feel like with, especially with early Genesis, you start to feel that the band is making music that is very technically proficient, but then, you know, I don't know if it was just Peter Gabriel or maybe some of the other members too comes in and is like, let's make it rock though. Let's make it something that's going to like touch people in a way that, you know, a, a, a well-crafted mathematically specific song can't do. And I feel like Steely Dan misses for me anyway, misses that final step where they're just like, we're going to craft these incredibly intricate, amazingly performed songs but then we're just going to neglect the idea of like making those songs connect with people on an emotional level. And I don't know, like obviously 
lots and lots of people like Steely Dan. And so clearly I'm just missing something and that's fine. Like that's not the first time that's happened in my life where I've, you know, heard a band and been like, everyone gets this and I don't, I don't understand why. And, and that's fine. Uh, and I, I'll definitely never begrudge somebody. Like if somebody comes up to me and says they're a huge sublime fan, they're going to get judged. I'm going to be like, you, you're, you're probably a moron. <laughs> if somebody comes up to me and says they're a huge Steely Dan fan, I'm going to be like, Oh cool. That's fine. You know, like whatever. Like I'm not a big fan of them, but I understand why you like them and I understand their appeal. But for me, I don't know, like without that emotional connection, it just sounds so cold to me that I, I don't know. I just, I just can't really get into it. So I don't really have any like deep personal connection to, to Steely Dan to, to go off. But I will say that their first like three records and the big hits off of those three records are, are really are awesome. And I totally like, you know, I can listen to reeling in the years on loop for a good hour before I'd be like, all right, we got to turn this off, you know, but, but yeah, like there's a lot of good stuff that they do that is really impressive and awesome. And I like a lot, but I don't know. It's just like, there's something about them that just prevents me from diving head in and being like, this is going to be one of those bands that I just love forever. You know, I mentioned before growing up with Celie Dan, cause my parents had listened to him. But I kind of started listening to them more independently when in high school, I think it was really high school. And I've, I've mentioned this in other episodes and you mentioned Genesis and that was another band that I started getting really into in high school where I was really kind of just listening to a variety of different things and especially bands that had some kind of technical proficiency that just didn't exist in some of the because i listened to a lot of like grunge music and it's not exactly the you know it can you can you pick up a, gu- a guitar and play a power chord <laughs> like you can be in a grunge band <laughs> i um, don't know so. nirvana's bleach is pretty <laughs> technically proficient. <laughs> that's a joke by the way in case you guys don't know <laughs> so i i was kind of fascinated by like oh there's a ton of other music out here and people who are just like insanely talented and so I was listening to Genesis, King Crimson, and I'd probably say Steely Dan was sort of the third of that triumvirate of just amazing <laughs> um, people with incredible abilities that I will like never have. So I was listening to a lot of Steely Dan then, and as I mentioned, like focusing more on the music. And I'd started learning guitar in middle school, so by high school I felt like I could take on you know playing playing some Steely Dan tracks. I'm in and, my 30s and I couldn't take on a Steely Dan track. <laughs> and and I can play parts of Steely Dan songs <laughs> with with moderate success. <laughs> um, but I, I'm just kind of floored by from from right out of the gate with the first record with Reeling in the Years and just some of the playing on there is just so incredible. And especially the later albums when they start getting the different session musicians in there who are people who are just like, this is my instrument and I do this better than anybody else. And I'm so good at it that I'm not even going to like go out on the road. Like you can't even take me out on the road. Like (laughs) all I will show up to is the studio. Um, so I started, I picked up, you know, back the, the, the guitar tablature books and opened up the Steely Dan stuff. And you're just immediately like, I, it's, a foreign language because these chords I've never seen before the the lead track, the lead guitar tracks and stuff. It's just crazy. Um, but I, I feel like it definitely gave me a better understanding of music trying to play that stuff. Like I'm familiar with kind of some weird chords that probably most other people who pick up and, you know, play your, your standard rock stuff. Um, it, it was just, I don't know. It was just an interesting 
kind of eye-opening experience because you get so used to picking up a guitar and you're like, okay, I know, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I know those chords and I know a couple variations and I know some power chords and stuff like that. And I think it just kind of opened my eyes to like this whole world of other in almost seemingly infinite chords that exist because it's like any song that I played, the chords on the, the, the next song in the book were totally different. It's like, <laughs> I couldn't even like learn a song and be like, I can apply this elsewhere. It was like, okay, it's just totally different. And a lot of that was due and I didn't really realize it at the time. It was due to these different guitarists playing in the band. So somebody would have kind of a different toolbox of chords that they would draw from. And so that made it kind of interesting. And I think I gained a better understanding of just how different instruments sort of talk to each other because I, a lot of what was in the book would be keyboard parts transposed for playing them on guitar. So I think I got a better understanding of, oh, that's how you can do this on a different instrument. And I think it just, you know, made, made connections in my brain that didn't really exist before but ultimately i think it just made me feel incredibly inferior as <laughs> as a guitar player and a musician and and feeling a little bit just like you know might should, should i do like music for a career like am i that good and then you like look at some of this stuff and you're just like whoa there <laughs> there, there is an incredibly high bar out there for for people playing this stuff i mentioned earlier in the episode that i'd been paying more attention to the lyrics in a lot of these Steely Dan songs that I hadn't really appreciated or I think understood at a certain time. And maybe some of that was because being so focused on playing guitar, I was much more interested in what was going on instrument wise than, than the lyrics. But I love almost Gothic because I feel like one of the, the verses in the song sort of, I think describes how I feel about Steely Dan. And I don't know if they intended this as like a meta thing, but th this, this kind of sums up the, the Steely Dan thing for me. That's her style to jerk me around. First, she's all feel. Then she cools down. She's pure science with a splash of black cat. She's almost Gothic. And I like it like that. I feel like there's, there's something about that. Like the, the science part, that meticulousness, with like the black cat, there's just some kind of like special, special magic going on. And I don't know, for, for some reason that those short few lines sort of sum up Steely Dan for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Please visit our website at www.skippedonshuffle.com for more news about other episodes and our upcoming schedule. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please visit skippedonshuffle.com for links to all of our social media pages.